You are listening to the Wise Women Podcast, Season 3, Episode 106. I'm your host, Alicia Wilford, founder of Yoke and Abundance, leadership coaching for entrepreneurs, creatives, and seekers. This podcast is designed to inspire by introducing you to creatives living abundantly. In today's episode, I'm sharing my conversation with Liza Kindred. Hello there, Yoke and Abundance community. It is wonderful to be with you today, and I am elated to share today's interview with you. Today, I'll be talking with Liza Kindred, author of F This, founder of the F This Meditation Community, creator of Mindful Technology, and a frequent keynote speaker. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with Liza after a word from our sponsor. So today's episode was made possible by the beautiful book, Winter of the Wolf, written by Martha Hunt Handler. This book is a tragic blending of sleuthing and spirituality that I devoured in a weekend, less than 24 hours if I'm being honest. Winter of the Wolf explores grief, suicide, spirituality, Inuit culture as it follows Bean, an empathetic and spiritually evolved 15-year-old determined to unravel the mystery of her brother Sam's death. This book is so good, you're going to want to reread it once you've finished the last chapter. I loved it so much, we made it a Yoke and Abundance book club book earlier this year. I highly recommend purchasing it, reading it, and sharing it with a friend. But you don't just have to take my word for it. Hear what Yoke and Abundance community member Anne Cassidy has to say about Winter of the Wolf. What I loved about this book was Bean. She's beautiful, plucky, courageous. She's a true heroine. She never loses sight of her goal to uncover what she can about her brother's sudden death and to find the answers she seeks to the remaining questions. And ultimately... That's the healing for her. I thought Martha Hunt Handler managed to create a compelling page turner of a story, but also beautiful characters with such heart. I was especially struck by how believable the family dynamics and their responses were. And as you watched each member grapple with this loss and they each grappled with it in their own way. I think that even though it's a young adult book, it's for every age. And I think because it deals with loss, it's such a universal theme for all of us and gives us a new perspective on it. But the spiritual part of it, her search for spiritual meaning in the death is what's really interesting to me. And I think anybody would enjoy that. So go grab your copy now. There's a link in today's show notes and on to today's show. Liza Kindred, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for inviting me on. Absolutely. So I don't know, I think I started following you on Instagram, I don't know, sometime within the last year, but it's been a crazy year. But <laughs> the year that lasted 10 years, yeah. yeah. The slowest, fastest year ever. Oh my gosh. It's hard to even like keep track of time anymore. Yes, but oh, you know what caught my eye is that you have a book called F This Meditation. Yeah. <laughs> great book name. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh my personal experience is with meditation has been really like gritty and raw and real and also profanity laced and there's not a lot of that that's out there and so I wanted to offer something the book uh, and the company FS Meditation is really about offering an alternative path for people who are like interested in this kind of stuff but maybe also aren't don't resonate so much with a lot of the preciousness of it which I respect and I admire and I love when other people do that. It's just not who I am. And it's been fun to see how other people are like, yeah, F this meditation. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I completely get that. I mean, so often I'll be sitting in, in a meditation space and it's like, ah, you know, everybody thinks it's this quiet, mm. peaceful experience. And honestly, if you're doing it consistently, 
honestly, it's a really gross, messy, icky yeah. place to be. <laughs> well, I mean, like, what a lie. And it's so funny. I also think that it doesn't do a service to the practice of meditation because so often, so many people tell me, like, I tried to meditate and I wasn't good at it, or, you know, I didn't enjoy the experience or, or whatever. And and it's like, oh, I'm sorry that someone made you think you should enjoy it or that, you know, you would be, you could be good at something like this. I mean, we can be experienced in something like meditation, but as far as being good at something or finding that like, and, and I've been meditating for a long time and I've had moments, I've had moments of bliss, like a few little dots that like points of light. I've, I've experienced those. I know that they're possible, but I also know that in my personal experience, the experience of most of the people I work with, that's like few and far between. It's really gritty. It's really about like the messiness of everyday life. I think gritty is the perfect word for it because it's, it's normally a place where you see all of the things that you don't want to see. Yeah. I mean, it's, and for some of us, that's like looking at the shadow side and it's looking at things we don't like about ourselves. But then also it can be looking at wonderful parts of ourselves that it's like hard to, like maybe it's a light that's shining so bright, it's hard to look at directly. And so we do kind of have to like, I, I do think of meditation really as a mirror where we're like looking back at ourselves and, and uh, seeing what there is to see, which is like really hard to sit quietly yeah. with ourselves. Like that, do you swear on your podcast? Oh yes. Okay. That <laughs> shit is hard, <laughs> really difficult. And when I think a lot of the marketing that we have, it's super whitewashed um, in a lot of ways. I mean that um, both from like a, a race perspective, there's all kinds of, you know, love thin blonde young women, but that's not all there is out there. And so, you know, super whitewash, it's also this idea that like we can access the bliss and ohm and, you know, this idea of like Zen as an aesthetic and things like that. And it's, it's also marketing. Right. Oh, and, and maybe it's true to some people's experience, but again, I, I don't know them. <laughs> yeah, not real life. Yeah. Well, can you tell folks a little bit about, you know, who you are and a bit about your background that brought you to this place where you would want to write a book like this? Yeah, thanks. Uh, the book, you know, it's interesting. I actually, that is the second book that I wrote, but the first one did not end up getting published. And it was a totally different life and lifestyle. And it was actually about the future of commerce. And it's back, I was working in fashion for a long time. Uh, and I worked in tech for a long time. And at a certain point, I combined the two and was working in fashion tech, wearable tech. And I was really interested. Oh my gosh. I want to say maybe this is like 10 years ago-ish. And I was really interested in what I saw as the future and the potential uh, of technology. And so I was doing like a ton of keynote speaking at tech conferences, working with a lot of clients on developing different technologies and being like really idealistic about the capacity of technology to change our world for the better. And, uh, and, and I wrote a, a book, uh, I think it I literally don't remember the name. That's so funny. I think it was called The Future of Commerce. It's actually listed under my name on Amazon now, even though um, it never ended up getting published. It actually, uh, it was a tech publisher that uh, had ended up canceling like 25 books all at once. And mine was one of them. And at the time it was like super devastating. I actually spent three years writing the book. It was so hard. And it ended up getting canceled. And I remember having this feeling of relief mixed in with the sadness. And I was like, what's that? Like, you know, like I've been working towards this for years, you know, preaching this gospel of, you know, the future of technology. And then when the book ended up getting canceled, I had this little nugget mixed in there with all the sadness of relief. And I was like, I'm going to try to figure out what that is. And it, what I realized is that it, it was almost like gratitude because I had moved past it. At the same time I was doing all this work, I had started personally to have a meditation practice and I was going to uh, retreats and I was taking classes and I was like in my personal life really wanting to be um, centered and grounded. And then in my professional life, I was teaching people about like disruption 
Mm. And like interruption, which is really what wearable technology often is, is about like, like your Apple watch, which is constantly like, look at me, look at me. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so I I had this uh, disparity between what I was personally seeking in my life and what I was helping to put out in the world. And I also was seeing all these inherent biases in technology and all these problems that were just getting baked into the products. So we had all this potential for good, but it wasn't being realized because the same people were in the rooms building the same products with the same ideas and the same biases. And so I started moving away from that. And that's how I ended up moving from technology into working meditation, working in wellness, because it was really going down a path of becoming more true to what I believed. Okay, so how do you go from all of the pain and agony of writing a book? Like I'm in, I'm in the midst of writing that shitty first draft of my own book. And Congratulations! So how do you go through all of that? Get to that point where you're like, okay, it's going to be published, and then no, it's not going to be published. Like, how do you recover from that then to make it okay for yourself to like put yourself through that process again? Yeah, that thanks for asking that. And I and I listened to some of your previous podcasts and I know that you yourself have been through some things personally that maybe from the outside look like failure or yeah. and it is it is like how do we go from that I've had other things in my life. My very first business that I ever owned was a fashion forward clothing boutique in the Midwest, which was like a good and terrible idea. And it (laughs) opened and closed in like two years. It was like one of those, it just followed that arc that you hear about. And I ended up like six figures in debt. I was a single mom, no college degree, like just down and out like and and I had to move past that so life really for me and I think for a lot of other people has been like a series of successes and failures uh and I think that figuring that out and understanding that it is all a part an inevitable part of the journey makes it a little bit less about like an identity about like oh that's something wrong with me and more like that's something that happened Yeah. And so that was something else that happened. I've had some really, I've made some great mistakes and had some great failures. And, you know, I've also had some great blessings and some great successes. And it's really all a part of that. But this book, the FS Meditation book, the process of writing it was so different than the other book. So the, the subtitle is 108 Tips, Tricks, and Ideas for When You're Stressed Out, Anxious, and Overwhelmed. Like a mala, 108. Thank you for noticing. (laughs) My publisher was like, "Uh, we can only fit 106. And I was like, that's not going to (laughs) work. It's got to be 108. But it actually started because uh, uh, I'm 42. I have a daughter that's about to turn 21. So I had her when I was very young. And I live with chronic illness. I've been sick with fibromyalgia for about eight years now. And this book came about during the time of my life when my daughter was getting ready to graduate from high school. And I was very sick and did not really know uh, for myself, like how much time I had left, how much quality time I had left. And she was getting ready to go on a gap year. And I wanted to give her something that could help her. She she traveled the world for a year. I wanted to help her when I wasn't there for that year. And then also when I wasn't there, you know, going forward, Um, I wanted to give her the ability to care for herself in the way that I wish, you know, I could always be there to care for her. And so that book was really born out of this idea of like, here are some very concrete things that you can do when you're stressed out, anxious, overwhelmed, when you're like, fuck everything, you know, and you just don't know what to do. It's really about like, open the book, flip to something, try it. If it works, awesome. If it doesn't, try something else. And so I had started a spreadsheet for her of like, okay, here's what to do when you don't feel well, you know, and the spreadsheet actually ended up turning into the book. And I had Uh, worked with a lovely designer who had helped me put together a book that we just printed up ourselves. And I gave that to my daughter for her graduation gift from high school. (laughs) Yeah. 
Thank you. Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty great. So I had given it to her. And then in one of those amazing serendipitous moments, I had a publisher contact me through the DMs on Instagram. I thought it was like a scam. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They like slid in and they're like, have you ever thought about publishing a book? I'm like, well, who hasn't? But I was like, well, I actually have a book. And so it ended up, my publisher is wonderful. They're called Quarto. They're the largest wellness publisher in the UK and they're growing here in the US. And the book uh, that anyone can buy now, anywhere, Amazon, local bookstores, is uh, an edited version of that book that I made for my daughter. Wow. That so it is really so is cool. a gift. Yeah. And we will add, we'll link to it in the show notes as well. So folks can pop into the show notes and grab a copy of the book, which I highly recommend. And Thank you. I love about it is like you have one minute meditations and I have to yeah. say right off the bat, I, I did one. I was like, Oh, I can't, I can't go on. I have to do this meditation because I like it. I um, love that. You had the one where, um, like take a moment to, to notice three things you see, three things you hear and three things you feel. And the simplicity of it is such brilliance. Um, and I'm someone that I, to, sometimes to actually register, I have to write it down. So I paused, I took a couple breaths mm. and I wrote it down and I was astounded by the act of just having to slowly pay attention how much I saw and heard and felt. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I think that there is such beauty in that simplicity and in, in the ability to do, and that's really what I tried to do. And I appreciate you sharing that that is, that worked is that I try to strip away so much of the kind of like extra and just really talk about like, what are we trying to do here? And in that practice, which I do all the time, I love that practice. I, I use that all the time, you know, in the time of Corona, there's so much anxiety and so much stress. And I find myself like, I think of myself a lot. What would I tell someone else to do? You know, like what, what's in my book? I go to it all the time. And that's one of the practices that I love doing too, because it is so grounding and so centering and it requires so little from us. It's not like, okay, you're going to need 20 minutes. You're going to need your cushion. You know, it's like, no, just like take a minute and you can like, just come back to yourself a little bit. Yeah, it was great. I was like, oh, my mom's flowers has pollen falling on her tablecloth. You know, the, like the thing that you don't normally mm. pay attention to, you're like, oh. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And, and then you're just a little bit more inhibiting the space that you were already in. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really... I mean, what I think works so well about this book is that it's bite-sized. I mean, there's something for any amount of time you want to devote to it. Um, you know, the, the one minute, the five minute, I believe there's 20 minute, up mm -hmm. to an hour even of practices. And you do write them out in such um, bite-sized nuggets that it's easy to digest. Thanks. Yeah. It, I want it to be that way. Like, it is good to do the longer practices. It is really meaningful to spend an hour in meditation. That is super beneficial. And I would never say that it's not, but it's also super beneficial to spend five minutes doing something mindful. Absolutely. I mean, you shared, um, I was looking at one of your speaking clips and you were sharing that how even eight to 12 minutes in mindfulness, a mindfulness practice can change our gray matter, which... Isn't that amazing? It, th that is one of the things that I think is, you know, people that are really into the science of meditation are really aware of this stuff. Uh, but the same way, my friend Lodro Rinsler, who is, uh, he's written like five or six books on Buddhism and meditation. He's, he's so smart about this stuff, but he compares it to the way we felt about physical exercise in the 1950s, which is like some people were doing it. Um, but if you like went out for a jog in the 50s, people would be like, who's chasing you? You know, like what's going on? There wasn't, uh, there wasn't a culture of like exercising and practicing like with your physical body, at least not here in the Western world. Yeah. And we're really kind of in that same place, I think with meditation and mindfulness, where people are starting to realize the more you flex these like muscles, they're not actually muscles, but the more you 
have these thoughts, you're actually carving new neural pathways. And so we're changing the way that our mind thinks, which is amazing. We get into these thought patterns uh, and they're really easy to get into. And, and sometimes we feel like we can get stuck. But one of the amazing things is that we can actually like go in there if we're willing to take the time and say like, oh, I had this thought. I'm going to go ahead and think this other thought now. I mean, it really is this simple. And, and then I'm going to think it again. And then you kind of, it becomes easier and you just kind of like slide into that because you're changing the gray matter, the, the biology of your brain, you're changing it, which is like so freaking cool. Yes. And I'm so curious to see in the future, what the science will say around mindfulness and preventing dementia and Alzheimer's. Right. I mean, mm. I, I mean, I don't know that there, if there's anything there, but I was listening to a, um, a, a radio lab podcast recently, and they were talking about how important it is, um, for the gray matter to not be in our brain, basically, um, for it to get cleaned up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm, I'm curious what we'll see as far as research in the future. I mean, I think that this is the wild, wild west right now, as far as learning what mindfulness actually does for us. I think the benefits are so great. And yeah, we're really at the beginning. I love that you use that example. I've, I've seen a couple of things in the culture recently of people who were experiencing dementia or Alzheimer's on their own and, and, and who were kind of lifelong practitioners of, of mindfulness or um, mindfulness practices. And it, it is really remarkable, I think, to have the gift of having that kind of cognizance of your own mental awareness to be able to even like watch as it changes, which obviously dementia is a change that we don't want to go through. But to be able to bear witness to that, I think, is, is really spectacular through this close relationship with, with ourselves and our minds. It's, I, I haven't obviously experienced it myself, but it really does seem like to your point that there's some real there there. Absolutely. I'm curious if you have a favorite, maybe one minute practice in the book, or if you have a favorite like mid range practice that you would really like folks to maybe take a look at. Yeah. Bounce around. Yeah, thank you. So I think that the most powerful practice in the book is the first one, and it uh, it it like takes not even like ten seconds, and that is to uh, extend our exhale longer than our inhale. That activates the parasympathetic nervous system, and it sends a message to our body that it is okay to calm down. One of the things that we often try to do is to um, use cognition to overwrite emotion or basically to like convince ourselves not to feel something. I mean, I do it all the time. And we all do, I think, where it's like, oh, like to ourselves, like, oh, Liza, just calm down, just relax, which works about as well as when someone else tells you to relax. <laughs> We're just like, it doesn't. It has the opposite effect sometimes. Totally. Right? Totally. Like, I mean, I feel like it's such a, a trope in the pop culture or like on TV shows or whatever. Someone would be like, just relax. It's like nobody wants to be told that. But we do it to ourselves all yeah. the time. I'm like, just calm down. You know better. You know, whatever. Uh, it doesn't work. But what does work is actually sending messages to our brain through our body. Uh, I am really doing a lot of studying recently of the, the vagus nerve, the vagus system. Uh, polyvagal um, therapy is something I think that is fascinating. I'm trying to learn as much as I can. Um, the vagus nerve is the largest nerve in our body and it goes basically from like the base of our skull all the way down into our abdomen. Like it goes all over. Across the belly. and Yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. And 80% of the messages between our, that go on the vagus nerve between our body and our brain, 80% of the messages are going from the body to the brain. So we're sending messages from our body into our brain, not just, you know, we think about our brain as like, okay, body move now. Like, I don't know, like it's a puppet or something. Uh, and we do send messages from the brain to the body, but we send a lot more from the body to the brain. And so if we're having something where we're like, just relax, uh, we, thinking that doesn't work, but we can actually do some practices, specifically some breathing practices or some, um, Vega system practices that actually do send the message to our brain, like 
it's okay to chill out. And the fastest, easiest one is to extend your, in, your exhale longer than your inhale. And so I think that is the most powerful one in there. There's, there's lots of other ones, but it doesn't have to be complicated. It can literally be as simple as just like, I'm going to focus just on my exhale right now. I love that so much. And in, in your book, you say this is magic <laughs> about that particular practice. And it is, it's magic. <laughs> it is. And you know what else I like about it? And a lot of the practices that are in the book is that you can do them like in secret, right? Like you can be in a moment. You can be like online somewhere or like in the grocery store or at the dinner table with your family or whatever. And like, no one has to know that you're doing a breathing practice or that you're like doing a little tapping under the table or something. I love stuff like that where it's like a, yeah, it's like magic. It's like secret little superpower where you're like smiling. We are like, nobody knows I'm prolonging my exhale. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. Well, how did you originally make your way into this world? I know you've studied like kind of Tibetan, um, mm-hmm. right for a while and yeah. years. how did you find your way into that? Yeah. You know, I was raised in a family that was very fundamentally religious. I was raised in a family that was Mormon and very strict. I had a very strict upbringing, it was not fun for the most part. I had kind and loving parents that made a lot of mistakes uh, in their strictness and in kind of wanting to see, well, I'll speak for myself. There's six kids in the family, but I shouldn't speak for my siblings. But for myself, uh, my memories of growing up are often about um, that I needed to change and be better or be different. And those messages were both indirect and they were direct. And in fact, when I was... 14, I had, I was doing some things that like 14 year olds do. I was like trying pot, like whatever. And because of the strictness of my parents, they had such a strong overreaction to me doing really normal 14 year old things that they ended up having me locked up against my will. So I was put, I was institutionalized in, it ended up lasting three years in seven, I think, different places. I've tried to go back and pull the records, but because so much time has passed and they were all on paper, not computer, it's been hard for me to get like a clear picture. But I ended up in the quote unquote system, the juvenile system. I was never like charged with any crime or anything. Not that I wasn't committing any, but I ended up like in drug treatment center. I ended up in juvenile detention. I ended up locked up in the psych ward. Like anything, once they got me in the system, the system is, I mean, it's a money-making thing, right? They maxed out the insurance at like a half a million dollars. I ended up as a ward of the court so that the, when I think it was 15, so that the state would like keep paying for these treatments that I definitely knew I did not need. And now, you know, it's like very obvious, but at the time they were just like, when my parents went to these places and said like, oh, we're worried about our daughter, she's experimenting. They were told oh my gosh, it's, it's so much worse than you even know. If she's telling you she tried pot, she's whatever, she's doing heroin, she's doing crystal meth, whatever. And nobody, I hadn't, but nobody believed me. And so I ended up at, at the time when most people are like, I don't know, playing sports at school or like going to prom or whatever. I was locked up. I was just like, put away. And, and there are so many kids that are going through this right now. Um, whether it's like juvenile detention for like crimes or perceived crimes or that kind of thing. There's so many people I was like, just kind of set aside. And so I have supported myself since I was about 17. Wow. And yeah. And so to me, I'm sharing that story, one, because I think it's important to just like speak the truth of what happened, which is not something I've talked about for long. Like it's only something I've recently start, started really sharing, partially because it makes people like really uncomfortable because it's fucking nuts. <laughs> like it's crazy. I hear your story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for a safe place to share it. Um, it's the truth. You know, it's the truth of what happened to me. And I, uh, I did have to realize that I was continuing to protect the people that had hurt me by not allowing that part of my story to be told because I 
know now that my parents regret what they did and would have done it differently now. And so I spent like 20 years not telling anybody what had happened and just kind of, you know, people talk about high school or whatever, just kind of changing the subject or, you know, or not, but you know, it is what it is. So my idea of religion <laughs> was really tied up in that, like for, for a really long time. Like, uh, I never felt like I really had a chance to develop my own relationship with any kind of a higher power or any spirituality because to me, based on my lived experience, religion and spirituality were treated as the same thing and they were not safe. They were very dangerous. Uh, and I had to protect myself from that. And so I had a desire to develop my own spirituality and to walk my own spiritual path, but it took me a really long time to feel like it was something that was like available. Understandably so, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, okay, so I became interested in Buddhism. And then I had this person in my life who uh, was my brother-in-law for a while and a business partner for a while. And he practiced Buddhism and he became such a know-it-all. <laughs> it was like, I remember he went on this like 10 day Vipassana silent meditation retreat and he came back and then suddenly like he thought he knew the answer to everyone's problems. <laughs> like, uh, and so even though I was interested and attracted to the idea of Buddhism and that kind of stuff, I was like, that sucks. Like, yeah. how is that any better? You know, it's like, I mean, it's obviously better, you know, but uh, I let that be, um, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in a small town and there wasn't like a community of Buddhists. Like he was like the only one that I knew. And so I let that be Buddhism for a while. Like it, it's his kind of. Right. And so it wasn't actually until I left, I moved to New York City that I started feeling like it was something I had like secret books, you know, it's like, I'm like reading Pema Chodron on the DL or whatever. <laughs> but I wasn't until I kind of like left the small town that I grew up in and felt like I could explore it more that I started down the Buddhist path. I studied Shambhala Buddhism for about 10 years. Um, and I ended up leaving when that community, like many other Tibetan Buddhist communities, was beset by scandal. Mm -hmm. I, which by the way, I had to do a lot of work around that because I was like, okay, you know, Mormonism isn't for me. And by the way, I, I know and love Mormons. And so I'm not speaking out against anyone's religion, no Christians, no Mormons. I'm just sharing my experience. Um, it, it is really important to me, even in, you know, we have this cheeky effless meditation. It is still really important to me to make people feel welcome. Like yeah. people don't have to agree with me. That's totally fine. And I welcome that as long as we're not, um, we try to have a community that is really putting the voice of marginalized people first. And as long as people can get on board with that, then it's like, anyone is welcome, please, you know, come here. Yeah. But, uh, I totally lost my train of thought um, about Legend. Buddhism and then doing work around. Mm. Yeah. So when I, so I, I was studying Shambhala for a long time and I had about 10 years, like I said, I had really gone down that path and I had this experience where I met the lineage holder of Shambhala Buddhism and I did not like him. <laughs> I had been reading his books and taking the classes uh, and really believing, like really doing the work and believing in it and, and putting my time and my money into it. And then I had an opportunity to meet him. And I was like, I have an icky feeling in my tummy about this guy. Mm -hmm. And I went home that night. I'm like sobbing to my husband and my daughter. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I have to separate the teachings from the teacher. Um, is this part of the path? You know, da, da, da. Also, I preach that we should teach, like trust our guts. And I did it anyways. It was tough. And then it was like, I think it was literally just a few months later that all these stories came out. He was um, reportedly very abusive to people around him. And then I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> 
like I knew. (laughs) Okay. So what I find so interesting is, you know, I haven't studied so much a, you know, I study meditation, but I haven't gone deep down one lineage in meditation, Mm. but, um, the yoga lineage that I, lineage in quotation marks that I come from is more of a yoga mutt type of lineage. And she's very, the, the person who I originally did my 200 hours with and much of my 500 hour work with was very much of the perspective of don't make anyone your guru. Like, yes, 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 yes. yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like everyone is just a person. And that was long before a lot of the scandals in the yoga world came out. And there have been, I mean, more than we could probably count. But it, it's, I think it's such a- And they're happening constantly too. Yeah. I feel like every time I turn around, someone else I know is posting about like, oh, my community is falling apart because of the scandal. Yes. And it's just, I, I mean, I think it is a reminder to take the teachings, trust your gut, but don't put anyone on a pedestal because we're all human and we, a little bit of power can make, can- Yes. Make Thank you for saying help. that. Yeah. So I had an experience last year. I have not, uh, I'm not currently following a formal lineage. I had actually, after I left Shambhala, I started spending a little time in a a lineage called Dharma Ocean. And then like the same fucking thing happened. (laughs) And I'm like, are you serious? So I'm like, you know what? I'm, first of all, I'm not following any more lineages that are run by men. That's for me personally. I'm not doing that anymore. I've done it enough for me for now, at least. Uh, but I'm, I'm more interested in like exploring different things uh, and seeing what resonates. And I had the opportunity to go uh, last December to uh, the last retreat that Ram Dass was alive for in Hawaii. And I like, what a blessing and what an opportunity. I think that he I have so much, like, I even just get like shivers talking about him. He, he, it, from my point of view, more than anyone I've ever uh, studied, he just freaking walks the talk, like just walks the talk. One of the things that I've had to like relearn over and over again is that if, if someone hasn't been where I want to go, I don't want to take their directions. Yes. And I meet all these people who are like unhappy or like cranky or crabby, like teachers. I'm like, I don't actually want to go where you are. But, but Ram does. is like, that man sparkled. Like he lived it. And, uh, but at the retreat, he was, um, he was very um, close to his own death, his own passing, like a couple weeks away from it, as it turned out. Um, and so he was mostly just like Jay chilling in his wheelchair most of the time and, and kind of was able to like light up a few times for some ceremonies and stuff, but he was mostly just chilling. And so other people were kind of running the show. And one of the things that he teaches is that we are our own guru. Uh, he has a wonderful book. I recommend it highly called Polishing the Mirror, uh, which has really influenced a lot of my own philosophy, which is about really the mirror we talked about at the very beginning and finding ways to look at ourselves really clearly. And there was this dissonance that was happening between what I understood his teachings to be and what people were saying and what the actual experience of the retreat was. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge uh, poster on the stage of the Maharishi uh, and then a few other different varying like gods and goddesses, these huge posters on the stage while, t- while the teachers kept saying over and over again, you are the guru, look inside, look inside. And I was like, I remember having this moment where I was like, if I'm the guru, why is it not a mirror on the stage? You know, like, why is it the Maharishi? Why is it like, you know, these other people? It's like, if we're really, the, because that's worship and that's idolatry. And, and for some people that's good, but that's also not what they were saying. You know, what would have been really cool is if in the, like, where the face should have been, if it was a mirror. In the- yes! Oh, right. I love that. Around that. 
Totally. Like I, I've been thinking about this, like about future retreats about like, oh, can we get mirrored sunglasses where the mirror faces the inside or like put a mirror on everyone's meditation cushion or everyone's yoga mat. It's like, let's walk our own talk. Let's quit talking about like, oh, like the answers are within, but also I've got all the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what I feel like a lot of people do where they're like, yes, trust your own wisdom. And also the only path is the one that you can read in my book for (laughs) (laughs) $19.99. Like, come on. I love, that's such a wonderful observation as someone who is a part of that self-help world and Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, that's something that I struggle with and I'll do, I have a community called The Gathering and we, once a month I'll do a group coaching session and sometimes questions will be posed like, well, what would you do? And I'd be like, I am not answering that. Like, you got to answer that question. Good for you. Like, Good for I'm you. What I would do because it's irrelevant to this situation, you know. And I think, I think if we are able to, oh, normalize that going inward mm. more, that we'd all be better off. I love that, and it's so. It is such a difficult journey. Like it's so much easier said than done, especially for, in my experience, for women, because we are often taught from a really early age, like for instance, this idea of like, be nice. Be the good girl. (laughs) Yeah. Be the good girl. All these things where it's like, I, you know, I remember when I was young, it's like, give your uncle a hug. Or whatever. It's like, and I'm like, I don't want to give that guy a hug. I don't know. I'm, you know, and I think it's a little bit better now. Like people are understanding a little more of like letting people have their own control over their own body. But, um, but still it's really cultural that we're taught, like not to trust ourselves. Uh, And, and so like we can say it, but the process I'm, I'm working on another book right now. And so much of it is about the process of like, how do we actually, for me, I call it testing in the laboratory of our own life, mm-hmm. like learning our own way to figure out what's true for us. Because just saying to someone, believe in yourself, trust in your gut, trust your intuition. Like, it's like, yes, like, yeah, I want to do that, you know, but the practice of actually doing it is difficult to learn because we're, we're our behaviors that were learned are so far away from that stuff. I think it's super vital. And in that process of learning to trust yourself, you have to fall and skin your knee. And sometimes you, sometimes you cut it open and sometimes you get a bruise and sometimes you fall on, on feathers, but you don't know until you do it. And the more you do it, the more you can trust it. A hundred percent. I think that's so true. Like we are not necessarily always right. Like you could trust your gut and you could do something and be like, gut, you were wrong. And it's like, (laughs) that wasn't a failure of the gut. It was more just like a learning how to tweak that listening a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe you followed partially, but maybe because of the hesitation, he who hesitates, she who hesitates, you know, things, there's lots of different factors that go in there, but it's like the more we do that. And, you know, I, one of the things I'm talking about in the book that, that I'm writing right now is we have not trust. I, well, I can speak for myself. So before I really made a commitment to myself to trust my own gut, you know, so often it would be gathering information from other people first, Mm. you know, like what did my parents think? What did my siblings think? What did my coworkers think? before I made that decision myself. And so it's like, by the time that I go to trust my gut, there's too many outside noises influencing what I think the gut is saying. So it's like, you got to go there first and you have to follow that first. I love that. And I think that to to just offer for your listeners, some like really practical things that can be done. Cause it's like, I don't want to be too theoretical because I feel like, uh, we all want to be able to apply it. Right. So like one of the practices that I have found that's successful for myself is to listen to my gut, even on the smallest, most inconsequential things. So it like, doesn't matter what it is. Like it can be like, Oh, I want to eat this instead of that or whatever, which I shouldn't say that's not 
that that is inconsequential because obviously that's our bodies telling us what we want and need. But there there are things we think maybe of like big grand decisions where it's like you know where do I go with my career or with this relationship or whatever it is. Uh, and and some of the way to actually connect with our gut on those is to just like listen to it when it tells us like you want to take route A instead of route B or whatever it is, these little things. And that really helps say to like our instincts and our intuition, I'm listening. Yep. Keep giving me signals. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to try it. Or yeah, I really want to wear that pink dress today instead of the red one or, you know, whatever. Yes. And without having to go down the process of understanding why, like yeah. so many of us do this, like, why would I want pink instead of red? Because pink is girly and red is supposed to be powerful. And like, why, like we do that, right? We start spinning out about something where it's like, or it's just pink <laughs> and it you just want to wear it. I love that. Well, okay. I, I, you, so you say you're writing a next book. I'm always, when I have folks on that have written a book, I always want to be like, okay, so what's next? But also I don't want to discount the celebration of what's already passed, right? So I, I hesitate to jump right to the what's next, but please tell us about that next book. Thanks, yeah, thank you so much. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording about how we're all living in this liminal space right now where we're all living because of what's happening right now. Right now, while we're talking, we're before the election. Um, you know, we're in the middle of COVID. There's so much that's unknown in so many different ways. Uh, and uh, we don't know what is next. Like no one knows what's happening next. And we also don't know how long it's gonna take to get there. And so, we're sitting in this space. I, I feel very much like I'm sitting in this space in between kind of what, like what happened and what's going to happen and, and doing that and being present for that and not having to figure it out is a real practice for me because I want like, I'm like, okay, what is every single eventuality here and how can I be best prepared for every single one of them? Like, <laughs> like I want to do that. Uh, and, uh, and it's not possible. And lots of people want to do that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's survival, right? It's like, yeah. we are literally actually just, it's like the basis survival instinct of like, how can I take care of myself and my loved ones? And that's a good thing. Like, it's not bad to want to do that, but it's also not possible. And so, uh, this is so funny. You're like, what's next? I'm like, what is next? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I am really taking some time and really appreciating the opportunity. And I want to be really honest about I am afforded that opportunity because my husband, his work is going really well. Uh, I spent a really long time. I was a single mom for 13 years. And I, there was so many times when people would not mention like, um, whatever, like a wealthy husband or family or support or whatever it is and not acknowledge the reasons that they could have space. And so for me, I have that space right now and it's not something I've had in the past. And I feel like it's really important to acknowledge, like I am married to someone who is supporting me financially right now. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's the truth, you know? And so that is affording me some space to kind of wait and see what kinds of things people are going to be needing and find a way to build those offerings into a steady business. So earlier this year, we launched a, uh, a private community, like, like right in the middle, like right when quarantine started. And it was like, I still think that the structure that we had was a great idea. It was just built for a different world because as soon as we started doing it, every yoga studio, every meditation studio, all these people who had never done anything online, every single one was doing it online. So we were building something that was very unique until it like just literally wasn't. <laughs> and so we had to really shift gears. And so what I'm waiting to find out is what do people need? Really like what is the best offerings for them? And in the meantime, um, myself and my team are just putting as many things out there as we can that seem helpful. So like next week, it'll probably be out there by the time people are listening to this, we're putting out kids meditations. So a series of free videos, mindful moments for kids, you can just set your kid in front of, free principal note cards that you can do the practices with them because we're hearing a lot of people who are like, I can't deal with my kids, love them, 
can't deal with them. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, let's do something for that. And so while we're waiting to kind of figure out where things are going to land, we're just trying to put as much out there as possible that's helpful to people. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, thanks. What do you need? Yeah. Uh, what do I need? Uh, yeah. Golly. You know, I think so much about what my, what my community needs. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I need. So that's an interest. That's a, just an interesting question. <laughs> um, you know, we have, we do have a lot of people in our community that are yoga teachers and coaches and, you know, and things like that. And I think that for me, one of the things that I want to be able to do is support people like yourself and people like your listeners who are out there giving, giving, giving and doing so much. Like I want to be able to offer support to you and to your community. That's like really interesting. I need, um, I would say, you know, I, I offer a lot of writing, like mindfulness and writing offerings for folks. I think I need one that I attend as an attendee, not as the facilitator. Mm. Um, I can't, I can't actually, when you're facilitating, you're not taking part in the same, yes. you're taking part, but it's obviously not quite the same way. Yeah. I think something that combines meditation and writing would be. Really I love cool. that. Okay. Thank you for that. And, and to listeners, I am like all ears also just all kinds of things that we can do. And, um, the idea, like you're saying of like going in and for yourself, taking care of yourself, that is like the hardest thing to do. <laughs> it is. Especially, I don't, do, do you have this? I feel this sense of like, um, or urgency, I guess, not of just like, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And it's like, sometimes it's like, okay, but I have to take care of myself first. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, my current thing, like my favorite self-care practice right now is actually, I'm doing a ton of watercolor and like, cool. I, yeah. So I make sure a minimum of once a week, I gift myself a watercolor lesson. And so I'll just sit down for a minimum of an hour. And oftentimes it turns into more, right? It's like, if you give a mouse and cookie, like I just want more and more watercolor. Yeah. Um, but it's something where I have to think so intently that it's like a meditation because it blocks everything else out, which is a really beautiful thing for me. I love that. And are you sharing what you're doing or are you keeping it private for yourself? Um, I'll post pictures of it and people keep asking me, they're like, oh, oh my God, you should sell that. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, for, for listeners, I rolled my eyes just then. <laughs> uh, the idea that we have to turn everything into a hustle, this like hustle culture. I mean, would, and by the way, I'm sure the people that are saying that to you are so like meaning so it so kindly. Yeah. And some of them like, they're like, I want to buy that. And yes. like, to me, what I love doing with it is um, it's kind of twofold. I love writing letters. So I'll make them note card sized sometimes. Cool. And then I write on the back of it because then I feel like I can be thought like that's a mindfulness. Pra I've got lots of things in my life that are little mindfulness, mm -hmm. practices, right? Like the painting is a mindfulness practice. I bake sourdough at least once a week. And so that's, a mindfulness practice as well. And it's just that the, the something that will immerse me 100% in the moment. I mean, you can't, you can't be checking your phone and mixing sourdough at the same time. You're going to get flour all over the place. So it's those things that draw you straight into the moment if you can't get your butt down on the mat, right? And you can be breathing. You think about like, for me, I, I often give the bread away. So I think about who is this going to nourish? How is this expressing my love out into the world? Oh my you know? gosh. I love that so much. I just got some uh, seaweed from this guy called, the, I think his, the website might be like the seaweedman.com or something, but he's like in Maine and he's an older gentleman in his seventies. And um, his whole thing is that he just spends the summer harvesting seaweed from the ocean in Maine and then he dries it and sells it. Like that's it. I love it. But I got this packet of, um, it's so nutritious, has all these great like minerals in it. I got this packet of seaweed soup mix and it comes with uh, a recipe and it's like a recipe for calming soup. And it's it basically like a breathing practice and a meditation wow. <laughs> where it's like the mind of the chef, get yourself to the energy you want to put in the food. And I love it so much. And I feel like that's what you're talking about with the yeah. sourdough too. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And it's, you know, I think that our mindfulness practices to ultimately, 
you know, I follow the NAP ministry and I, I forget the name of the woman who curates the NAP ministry, but she talks about how the idea of the word self-care does not resonate for her. It's not that she thinks that we shouldn't use it, but for her, it's community care. And like the idea of doing something for yourself ends up being something that n doesn't just support you, it supports a community because if you're not healthy, whole and nurtured, your community can't be healthy, whole and nurtured. And so I think in, in those practices, like the watercolor, it, it's, it is a self-care practice, but hopefully it will be a community care practice in that it will extend out with a love note to someone else or the bread. If I'm making myself one, there's always two to a batch. So I've got to give one to someone else. Um, so I love that so much. And I feel like the, uh, the idea of staying in community is something that I feel like is really powerful and important right now because a lot of us are alone, but we don't have to be lonely. And it doesn't mean that we even have to have like direct um, contact with people because we do need to take care of ourselves and our community by, you know, doing social distancing and following all that protocol. That's important. But we can't like letters. Like mailing people letters is amazing. And it's also, I think, a wonderful opportunity to practice. Uh, I see real alchemy and the idea of taking something that you can't get or don't have and turning it into something that you're giving. So for a lot of people, if we're feeling like lonely, to reach out to someone else is really um, alchemizing that sadness and turning it into joy for someone else. If we are feeling hungry or unnurtured to make bread and give bread to someone else, like is a really direct expression of taking a lack and turning it into an abundance. Absolutely. I've got, and I've got to share one other thing along these lines. So I've got a morning writing group and we come together and we do a meditation and we pull an Oracle group card and then we go on mute for 25 minutes. Everybody's on Zoom. We go on mute for 25 minutes. We all do our morning practice, whether it's writing or meditating or painting or dancing, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then we come back together and we talk about what's come up for us. Well, there was a week where we a lot of people in our collective outside communities had had really horrible things happen to them. Mm. And, you know, it's that year, a lot of stuff is happening and coming up. So I said, well, let's be the joy brigade and let's, um, you know, if, if you can give me an address, we can, we can, it's a small group of us. So I'm not, we're not broadcasting someone's address out to a huge group of people, but when we know of somebody that needs uplifting, we send notes, not notes of trying to fix it, but just saying, mm. we don't know you, but we are sending you our love. We're sending you support. You're being thought of, you're being cared for. And you know, it's, it's that way of extending love into the world because that that's what we all need more than anything right now it's so true and a, a corollary to that for people that are interested in meditation is the idea of a loving kindness practice which is uh sending out practice a lot of meditation is really contemplative and coming in uh but for people that are wanting to put that out there uh and i think doing it in a really concrete physical way like you're talking about is important and awesome an additional thing that can be done is a loving kindness or a meta meditation practice where for we're like actually one. yes uh-huh yeah. yeah, they're all kind of different versions of a similar thing. And they're all, yeah, they're all great. You can find, um, we have some free guided ones online, or you can just search loving kindness, metta or Tonglen practice, um, and sit in that space of like creating something and, and good and sending it out to people. I love that. We'll link to your loving kindness meditation great. in the show notes as well. So folks can get on, get the book, check out the loving kindness meditations, get on your email list, visit your community. Thank you. Send me, if you're needing something, send me a note and let me know what it is. I want to see your watercolors. Oh, I will show you. Um, so is there anything else you would like to share? Uh, the one thing, if I could just put a bug in people's ear is when we're looking at so many of us are seekers, so many of us are on a spiritual path. I want to introduce the idea for contemplation that we are complete, just not finished. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> we are whole. We are unbroken. We are just on a path. I could not 
agree with that statement more. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. This conversation has been awesome. And I'm really excited to have this out there for your listeners. I'm excited to hopefully hear from some of your listeners about things they're doing and things they need because we are in community together. We're on the internet, but we're still in community. So, okay. Last thing that to close with then is how do you live a life of abundance? Oh my gosh. Alchemy. I really, it's turn, taking things and turning them into things like taking things that are painful or things that are difficult and doing everything that I can to turn it into things that are helpful for other people. I love that. You're making gold for everyone. <laughs> Try my best. Try my best. Thank you so much for being on Thank the podcast. Thank you. Now, Liza and I would love to know what you thought of today's show. Please head over to iTunes, fill in some stars, and write us a review. It takes about five minutes, but it actually makes a really big impact on how many people are able to see our work. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Winter of the Wolf. Thank you to Ira Sterling of Julia Sound Recording for our theme music. And thank you to my editor, Tumani Johnson of FX Media for his work on today's episode. Remember, every one of us has wisdom within. Keep sharing your words of wisdom because you never know who you'll inspire.